Right. We are in tonight's title is uh, chapter, well, it's actually number 19. This is our 19th study. And we are looking right now at Christianity in Africa. This is the second part of that study. Last week, we began to examine Christianity as it began to to flourish in Africa. We looked a lot at individuals in the European area, what we would consider now the European area. Uh, Asia Minor, that area. <clears throat> and uh, last week we began to look at our study of Christianity as it began to flourish there in Africa. We said that when we speak of Africa uh, during the days of the Roman Empire, we're basically referring to northern Africa along the Mediterranean Sea, that north uh, area of the Sahara Desert. There were two cities that prevailed in importance over this large area. Those two cities are Alexandria and Carthage. We'll look at both of those. We began last week with the more influential city of those two, and that is Alexandria. Next to Rome, we said last week that Alexandria was the foremost city in the Roman Empire. Uh, The city of Rome was considered the political capital of the empire, while many regarded Alexandria as the cultural and intellectual capital of the empire. If you wanted to go study theology, if you want to learn about the philosophies of the Rome of the Greeks, uh, you would go to Alexandria. You would find both of those there. It was a center of all things art, all things science, all things specifically philosophy there in Alexandria. It was intensely Hellenistic. And uh, it was considered, uh, it had a very considerable Jewish population as well, Hellenistic Jews. I think we mentioned last week why you had the Septuagint translated there in Alexandria, because of these Jews who were Hellenized, spoke Greek, and wanted the Hebrew text in their own language. We also know that this was a center for Gnosticism, very, very strong in Alexandria was Gnosticism. And you can, you'll see it in some of even the best of Christian writers. We'll look at Clement of Alexandria. We'll look at Origen of Alexandria. And you will see a great deal of Gnostic influence. Even though they were fighting against Gnosticism, you'll see a lot of this Greek philosophy bleeding into their theology and their thought and in their teaching. So... Sadly enough, we'll see that, so they were, not, they were not perfect in that regard. We began to discuss two eminent individuals in Alexandria. The first of these was Clement of Alexandria. We say Clement of Alexandria to differentiate him between uh, from Clement of Rome that we studied earlier. So there are two Clements, and you want to keep those separate. Uh, he was an adult convert to Christianity. Uh, He labored during the latter half of the second century, and tradition says that he died in Asia Minor about A.D. 215. There were three important writings that came from Clement that we wanted to examine. We looked at two of those last week. We'll briefly mention them and then get to his third one tonight. We mentioned, first of all, his exhortation to the Greeks. That's the English title to that work, so if you want to know the Greek title, look that up and just Google it. You'll find it. It's an exhortation to pagans of Greece to adopt Christianity. We mentioned last week that this is what we would consider something as akin to a gospel tract that would be a lengthy volume, uh, not something just very simplistic, but very detailed about 
the Christian faith and how you need to shun paganism and turn to Christ for salvation. That's the exhortation to the Greeks, just as you might imagine that title meaning. The second of these works is called The Tudor, again, an English title to that work. That was a sequel to the volume Exhortation to the Greeks. Uh, basically, this was a primer for the training of new converts. So very, logist, very logical. First, a book, a work to bring people to faith in Christ. Secondly, a work to teach them about the Christian life and the Christian faith. A lengthier volume, by the way. Tonight we want to look at um, the third and final writing that we are going to examine that Clement of Alexandria wrote, and that is the English title, Carpet Bags. That is uh, Nick Needham's title for that book in English. I'm sure he got that from someone. It's called Carpet Bags. Uh, the Greek title for that is the Stromates. Uh, some have some have called that the Stromata, which is really an error. It's the Stromates, which translated into English means patchwork. Right? It's uh, also miscellanies. So just imagine if you if you have on your computer all your files, something for this, something for this, and now you have something miscellaneous. And so you throw into that miscellaneous folder, you know, your your hodgepodge of stuff. It's sort of your your junk your junk drawer in your kitchen, right? That's on your computer. That's what this volume is. It's a patchwork. It is carpet bags. It's just a lot of different information. It, uh, someone had, had written here that the oldest extant manuscript that we actually have dates back to the 11th century of this particular work that we have for him. It's a very peculiar work in which Clement covers a large variety of topics, as the title suggests. It presents what Clement would identify as the ideal Christian. So this is a picture of what you might imagine this person to be, at least in Clement's eyes, what that person would look like. The first step in Christianity is a faithful belief in the teachings of the Bible, right? So far, so good. But then progresses into spiritual knowledge, which would transform the natural man into an individual who grew in the likeness of Christ. So you can hear in that this borrowing of language from the Gnostics, this knowledge that's necessary, but I don't want to put Clement in a bad light in that regard because he is he was fighting against those, those Gnostics in his day. He was a teacher there in that catechetical school in Alexandria. I believe he was the third main teacher there. Someone by the name of Pantanus was, if I say that right, correctly, I'm, forgive me if I mispronounced his name, was the first of those, and then Clement, and then Clement's student, Origen, who we'll again look at tonight. Um, but Clement said that this spiritual knowledge that he refers to is, is, is the spiritual knowledge that made the Catholic Church the true Gnostics. These Gnostics professed to have a special knowledge to make it into what we would consider heaven, right? And he is saying that as a false knowledge, but the only real knowledge is that which comes from the word of God, and that makes them the true Gnostics, the true ones who know the real knowledge of the word of God. That's Clement. Uh, Clement is not without controversy. 
as were a number of these early church fathers. Uh, he, like all men, was flawed. But even, even in his condition as a true believer, he still held to many uh, of the Greek philosophies. And again, they spilled over into some of his writings. So if you're so inclined to look those up, you'll, you'll see that. You'll see the, the, the whispers of the, those Greek philosophies in his teaching, uh, especially teachings from Plato and, and the Stoics. All right, so you'll see that. You'll know that the Stoics were a bit, I say a bit, that's an understatement, on the, on the aesthetic side. Right, that they were very rigid, and you'll see that in Clement's writings as well. You'll see that in Carpetbags and his patchwork of, the, of of teachings. Even though he opposed the Gnostics, their philosophies still spilled over into his attitudes related to Christian practice. Uh, one of those is uh, in marriage, uh, and I'm and again, some of these are hard to nail down because it depends on who you're reading as to exactly what his what his thoughts were because they're trying to pull this from his writings of what he believed and one of these was in marriage that only I'm going to say this trying with a straight face only men not interested in women should stay celibate and not marry right? but by and large you should marry right? however his regard to intimacy in marriage was only for the purpose of procreation, and that's it. And so you can see again this this Greek philosophy, the Stoicism, uh, kind of bleeding into his maybe not so much his theology as to his his idea of Christian practice and that kind of thing. So that's that's Clement. Uh, not not a lot more to say about him. We don't know much about his origin. We don't know much about his early life. There's very, very little written about him. And all we have basically is just some of his extant writings that, that we have. So we kind of gather and glean from him what we have from his writings. All right, that brings us to another individual that's uh, of a bit of a controversy, and that's origin. That's origin. And there are some who just, there, it depends on who you read. Is, is he a saint or not, right? Is he, is he really, truly Christian? Or, you know, there's some things about him that bother a lot of people. So that's origin. We'll talk a little bit about him. Almost everything we know about origin uh, comes from the biological writings of the historian Eusebius. Eusebius wrote uh, a century or so later, uh, after uh Origin, and so he's writing the histories of, of from people that he has spoken to, and then of course Origin's writings, and we'll talk about that, but Origin's writings as well. So we're told that Origin was born uh, to Christian parents in Alexandria at eighty one eighty five. All right. So when you think of Origin, we don't want to think of a second century writer so much, but maybe a th early third century writer because he was born in 8185 but you know, he wasn't writing anything right in in those days so we're going up into the third century before we find some of his writings that were influential in the Christian church when Origen was just a teenager uh, his father Leonides and again I've seen it written I've heard one person pronounce it uh, on a 
in a YouTube video, not a uh, sermon audio, uh, someone uh, pronounced it Leonides. So I'm not sure exactly if that's right or not. But his father was martyred for his faith by Alexandrian rulers during a wave of persecution that came there in Alexandria under the Roman emperor uh, Septimus Severus. And so there's where he was uh, in those days being, um, he was a martyr. So Origen, as a young boy, I, they, they say he was about 17 when his father was martyred for his faith. Um, I've also written, I've also read that this was the same persecution during which Clement was persecuted, uh, and but he was persuaded by his friends to flee. So Clement fled that persecution, whereas Leonides died as a martyr during that same persecution there in Alexandria. It's tragic. There's a story, and again, this is you know, anecdotal, and some people say this is absolutely in, in the in the history books of what hap- what happened. Was that the way? Because Origen wanted to die as a martyr with his father. He wanted to go off and with and and be martyred as well. But his mother spared his life. She was aware that Origen was very conscientious about what he wore and how he dressed. So she hid all of his clothes, so he couldn't go out. Right? I mean, you can't you can't go out being martyred naked. Right? You've got to you got to have your clothes. So the story is a humorous story that she hid his clothes. He didn't go out, and then for whatever length of period of time, he was spared. So he was spared martyrdom. Whether that story is true or not, it's it's in the history books. So I share it with you. About a year later, he was 18. He uh, he entered the Christian academy there in Alexandria, that was founded by. They say it was founded by Clement or maybe Pantanus before him, if I'm saying that name right, and became a student of scriptures there, and he became a student of Clement of Alexandria, and he studied there for a short amount of time. Origen was such a gifted and intellectual student that Demetrius, who was the bishop of the church there in Alexandria, promoted him to the place of leadership over that catechetical school there in Alexandria uh, that catechized converts prior to their baptism. So imagine uh, it'd be like something similar to an academy, an, an academy uh, for people who have come to faith and need to be taught. And so they would be catechized in the Christian faith. Origen, at the age of 18, at least according to these historians, became the dean of that school. He was the head of that of that school at the age of 18. Um, he was, uh, again, the origin of the school is a little bit fuzzy, but Clement was one of those teachers there. We're only assured of some of the more prominent leaders in that school. Again, its founding we're not sure about, but we know that uh, Pantanus, Clement, and Origen, just to name a few, were the first people to teach and to be leaders in that school. Again, Origen was only 18 years old when he began to teach in that school, which really reveals his genius, his brilliance, even at a young age. And his fame began to spread far and wide. People learned about him. 
He was gifted. He was a good teacher. He knew a lot of things, not just Christian faith, but also the philosophies, the Greek philosophy as well, which gave him a particular gift to be able to do battle against these philosophers because he knew so much about them. He knew so much of their teachings, and he could uh, handle them quite well. He was a greatly sought-after speaker in places all over the empire, and he began to write. And man, and man, did he write. He wrote a lot. Um, someone said that his works would fill over 600 volumes. I mean, we're talking tomes, 600 volumes of, of writing. He had a scribe with him every day. Uh, who would write what he dictated. The story is that he not only had one scribe, he had seven scribes, and they would take turns because he would dictate so much and they would write, and then he would have another scribe would write, and then another scribe would write. And so he would dictate. So I guess if you had a, someone to dictate and to write to, you could fill up 600 volumes too, right? You, you could do that, but that's what he did. Um, question is, how could he afford this scribe? You know who who pays for this person? Right? Who pays this person's salary and keeps this person fed and, and sheltered? Well, Origen was instrumental in the conversion of a very wealthy man there in Alexandria named Ambrose. Um, Ambrose was a follower of Valentinus, who was a teacher of Gnosticism, and he had his own branch of of Gnosticism. And so Ambrose was a a follower of that faith in Gnosticism, and he was brought to faith by origin uh, to Christianity. Now, you hear that name Ambrose, that, that should kind of raise your ear. Uh, it's not the same Ambrose, okay? There's another Ambrose of Milan, or that's going to come later. So, but, so this is a different Ambrose, so don't get those two confused. He was a wealthy man, and he paid for a lot of things that Origen did because he was able to. And so Origen was able to travel, he was able to teach, he was able to write, he had, he had a, a scribe with him all the time, uh, because these things are expensive, right? To write these books, uh, to have these things copied, that, that costs money, right? It's not like today, you can just, you know, write something up and go down to, yeah. do they still have Kinko's? I don't know if they still have Kinko's, to have it called copied. You can't do that now, right? I mean, you can now. But in those days, everything you had was handwritten. And that's what made them expensive, because somebody had to write that. So Ambrose was so impressed by this young scholar that he gave Origen a house. He, he had a secretary. He had seven stenographers. He had a crew of copyists and calligraphers uh, and paid for all of his writings to be published. And so that's the blessing of Origen and, this, and Ambrose. He wrote on a remarkably wide variety of topics. It'd be hard to find a topic that Origen did not write about. He just completely filled books. He was a brilliant thinker. Uh, he wrote on just about every topic you can imagine. And, of course, we're not going to agree with all of his conclusions. If you read Origen and you read you know, where he came down on things, you're not going to be in agreement with a number of those things. One of those, according to his historians, is that he believed in the preexistence of the soul, for example. Um, someone has said that he believed that even Satan himself could be converted and saved. There are objections to that. People say, well, that's not exactly what he said. That's not what he wrote. And that's something that was twisted by some of his enemies, people who disagreed with him. 
and said, well, he believed even Satan himself could be saved, um, which would make him a universalist, that all people would be saved eventually. Again, I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, the history is a bit fuzzy. It depends on who you read, who you listen to, as to whether or not you think this is actually true. So I leave it to you, please. Uh, do your own research. Do some reading and find out. Uh, again, I'm not, I haven't been studying it deep enough to know and to have a conviction as to whether or not it's true or not. But we do know there's enough about origin that there are some things that you know, may be a little unsavory in our thoughts and our thinking. Um, if we understand his writings correctly, again, basically he, he could have very well been a universalist, but I don't know. The reality is that he believed a few rather strange things, and I shared already shared one of those things. So as a result of all those volumes, someone said he could have written maybe 2,000 treatises that would fill up 600 volumes. Out of all the things that Origen wrote, only about 5% have been translated. Right? Oh, that's it. So there's a lot of things out there that are left in the original languages that you're just going to have to you know, read yourself or have somebody read it for you, in Greek is what he wrote in. But it takes money to translate all those works. And apparently even Ambrose and his wealth, you know, helped giving him all that, you know, stuff to write. He write and write and write. So he wrote all these things. But then later on, of course, way after the days of Ambrose and Origen, people who wanted these, they just didn't want all of it. It was just too much. So they had to translate just a few things that we have that are important that are translated. We have about 5% of that because it does. It takes money to translate those works. You've got to pay somebody to translate it and then write it, so it's expensive. Um, we are told that he was an ascetic as well. I think we all know what an ascetic is. Uh, someone said that he wore a slave collar all his life just to remind him of his servitude. Okay? So he wore a slave collar. He owned only one coat, um, and he walked barefoot everywhere he went. He had no shoes. Again, basically asceticism. He never drank wine. He fasted often and for prolonged periods of time. His diet was composed of very small and selective amounts of food. He fasted often, like I said. Uh, he would work through the day and then force himself to stay up and study and pray through the nights, many, many nights, and when he did sleep, he slept on the floor. So again, basic attitudes of asceticism. He was what one person said, an early example of what would become the spiritual life of ascetics. And we'll talk about that when the time comes, about some of these who uh, would just live these abject lives of poverty and, and, and horrendous conditions. Um, some of you may be familiar familiar with the, the pillar, the pillar saints, these individuals, they would build a pillar and a little loft at the top and live up there. And rain, snow, sunshine, heat of the day, dark of night, they'd live up there. And they would have disciples to, you know, shuttle food up to them. And then they would shuttle down waste for them to get rid of. And it was that's and so this is sort of a beginnings, if, if intentional or not, unintentional, the beginnings of that kind of idea of what the ideal Christian life would be of absolute self-denial and 
and living a life like that. And we and we see that progressing all the way up into you know the days of the Reformation, right? And individuals who would do all the all the, the self-flagellation uh, for penance, as it were. Um, so that, of course, that would again develop into this monkish behavior uh, that we'll look at later on. Sadly, he and Demetrius had a falling out. Demetrius was the pastor of that church. He was the bishop of the Church of Alexandria. And he and Demetrius and Origen had a falling out. It's reported that Demetrius sought to exercise an inordinate amount of control over the school where Origen was the leader. And Origen resisted those attempts and eventually was was successful in that, in, in maintaining control of the school. Good, bad, or indifferent, that's the story. That's the history of what happened. Um, as a result, um, the result was that Origen retained the leadership, but he never regained his friendship with Demetrius. There was always this clash between Origen and the pastor of, of the church there. Um, as well as teaching at the school, he began to travel throughout the empire and became somewhat of an authority on various issues related to the Christian faith. So he, again, he was a sought-after speaker. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to read his writings. Eventually, in the year A.D. 231, he was ordained a presbyter in the church of Palestinian Caesarea. So he had gone up to Caesarea, Palestinian Caesarea, and became a presbyter in that church, uh, which would be somewhat of a, like, a, like a, uh, an elder, like in our church we have elders, we have a, a, like a senior, like the bishop, but the pastor. He would become a presbyter there. Well, you might imagine that Demetrius would be very unhappy with that insubordinate behavior. So Demetrius strongly contested this action because it was out of step with the Christian norms that a man would be ordained in a church outside his own bishop's jurisdiction. And we would, you know, we certainly can sympathize with that. That if you have a falling out, you know, with your pastor, and then you go to some other city and you become a presbyter there, right? you, can, you can see that, right? You can, just, you can see the, the sympathies we would have with that. Um, so Demetrius, again, strongly contested that action. And he also said that... Um, Origen had disqualified himself from the ministry. And this is another one of those contested stories about Origen that you just have to dig deeper to find out about. Would you take your Bibles and would you turn to Matthew 19, please? Matthew 19, and I'm going to pick up my reading. Uh, where do I want to pick up my reading? Am I in the right spot? I'm going to pick up my reading with verse 10 in Matthew 19. Jesus has just spoken about divorce. Um, that... Um, he whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That's in verse 9. 
And then you get to verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry at all. Right? So he says in verse 11, But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And the story is that Origen, taking that passage over literally, made himself a eunuch and either him personally castrated himself or had someone else do that, which would then disqualify him right, in, in being uh, a bishop, at least in this, in this day and the, of the, according to the norms that were there in that day. It's contested whether that's a true story. I've, I've heard one individual that I highly trust said that this is, this is accurate from the story, history. The history I've read uh, is a contrast to that statement, that it's likely, highly likely, that this was something that was cast upon him by his enemies. Maybe Demetrius himself, that, well, he's just, you know, he did this. And so there is it's back and forth on whether or not that's really true or not. Some said that if he did do that, that he did later on in his life repent of such a thing, that he would fall into this, this youthful transgression, this youthful misguidance of doing such a thing to himself. So it is said that in later years he wrote that he regretted this rash and youthful transgression and repented of his action, if, that's, if it actually took place. Um, Demetrius eventually convened a council and excommunicated Origen from the church there in Alexandria. So he finally excommunicated. Origen then made his home in Caesarea after leaving the school in Alexandria and leaving the church there in Alexandria. Um, he made his home in, in Caesarea, and from there he would travel, he would write, he would preach, and he would teach. He actually started another philosophical school in Caesarea, and historians say that that school rivaled the one in Alexandria. So that's Origen. It was finally in AD 250 that Origen was arrested. This was during the time of persecution under the Roman emperor Decius. So there's not another wave of persecution. Origen is now taken into prison for his faith by the authorities there in Caesarea under the persecution of Decius. The governor of Caesarea gave specific orders that Origen was not to be killed until he had publicly renounced his faith in Christ. And so he spent those days imprisoned there, being tortured every day until he would renounce his faith, which he never did. And so day after day, month after month, for a period of a couple years, not sure how long, maybe three years, he was imprisoned and tortured for his faith. Decius eventually was killed in a battle, and those imprisoned saints were released, including Origen. So he was freed. 
Sadly, though, nonetheless, at about AD 253, you know, again, fuzzy on the dates, Origen succumbed to that protracted amount of excruciating tortures that were inflicted upon him. It broke his health, and then he eventually died as a result of those those wounds. So that is a brief overview of Origen's life. Uh, we want to discuss some of his writings. I'm just going to introduce a little bit of some introductory thoughts tonight, and tomorrow or next week we'll get into some of his writings. Um, but before we do that, we want to make a little bit of an over, uh, overview of his o- writing prowess. Origen, arguably, was his greatest claim to fame was his ability to read, study, and translate from the original languages. He was a scholar in Greek and Hebrew, as well as the Greek philosophies, so he was really, really good uh, at, at the translating of these works, uh, especially the Old, I mean, the Old Testament. All right? As far as we're aware, there are only two of these earliest church fathers with that gift, that capability. That was Origen, and then another individual we'll talk about later, his name is Jerome. We'll talk about Jerome. But both of these individuals were well gifted in the original languages, and that was their, their claim to fame. In uh, next week, we're going to discuss why that's so important, why it proved valuable to the Christian faith, mainly in, in a particular volume that Origen put together that we'll, we'll discuss next week. As we mentioned earlier, Origen was a prolific writer. He wrote roughly 2,000 treatises in multiple branches of theology, including textual criticism, biblical exegesis, hermeneutics, homiletics, and spirituality. So, I mean, that's a lot of topics, and he wrote a lot. He was arguably one of the most influential, if not controversial, figures in the early Christian history, as especially as they relate to theology um, and his asceticism and his statements regarding Christian practice. Um, yeah, someone described him as the greatest genius the early church ever produced. I'll, I'll leave that to you. To that, that's that's not a fact. It's an opinion. So I'll leave that to you to study and determine for yourself. Um, so next week we'll, we'll talk about some of his writings. Needham um, divides Origen's writings into four categories. We'll look at those one by one, uh, beginning next Wednesday. Okay. All right. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we are very thankful that we've had the privilege to look into the lives of these two individuals, Clement and Origen, and we are grateful for what has been left to us by these men in their writings as it gives us a glimpse into the lives of Christians in those earliest of days. We pray now, Father, that you will bless in our time of prayer as we bring before your throne of grace the needs that are represented by our church family and our friends and family. Bless, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.